0: Namorata sa Bhagavadu Vahato sammasambuddhasa Namorata sa Bhagavadu Vahato sammasambuddhasa Namorata sa Bhagavadu Vahato sammasambuddhasa Buddha ng nama sa ngang namasa amin So this is actually a very auspicious weekend. In the Buddhist calendar, there's four auspicious full moons, and the one that we had on Saturday was one of them. And this moon that we just had commemorates the time when the Buddha first gave the dhamma chaka the Sutta, the first discourse on the Four Noble Truths. And it also commemorates the time when In the Theravadan tradition, monks and nuns uh, formally determine the three-month basa retreat. And so for this period of time, for the next three months, um, we're resident in the monastery. And the order that I come from is a wandering order. And so for the rest of the year, it's suitable to be wandering in the countryside and not being resident in the monastery. But this is a three-month period of time where people stay in the monastery. And it usually is a time where there's more intensive study or intensive practice. And so it's, it's lovely when you have monastics gathering or doing that kind of intensive retreat because then it creates the opportunity for others to practice. So Saturday was a special uh, full moon. And all over monasteries, all over the world, there would be um, monks and nuns gathering and uh, determining the three-month rainy season retreat, masa retreat, and uh, having ceremonies and uh, sometimes spending the whole night with uh, staying up. So when we look at the life story of the Buddha, you know, before he was a Buddha, he was, uh, his name was Siddhartha, and he was a prince, and he lived in a, in a kingdom, Around the region of uh, Lumbini, Nepal, northern India, and if we look at the like the story of his lifestyle, you know, he was born into a family uh, of wealth. He was the heir to the kingdom, and he had, you know, kinds of opportunities and privilege that most of us ha- never have had and probably never will have. And, you know, his, his father was very protective of him and part of the reason why was because when he was born there was a, um, uh, the sense that this child was a very special child and either there were going to be two kind of directions that he was going to go. He was either going to become a world ruling monarch or he was going to become a fully awakened one. And the, the king, King Suodhana, his father... Didn't want him to become a world uh, a, a Buddha. It was like you know that was not something that he thought was a good thing. He wanted him to follow in his own footsteps. And so the story is, and whether this is true or myth or whatever, I don't, I can't tell you. The story is is that he made a lot of effort to protect this child from having the experience of the natural things that we know, which is of. Getting old and sickness and uh, and death, and so the gardens and the grounds were protected, and the area that the this child and grew up to a boy wandered was protected, and so there was very little uh, exposure to old age, sickness, and death. Now, whether that, whether I don't know how you can do that. I imagine if you're a king, you can do all kinds of things, but. The way I relate to that is is that there comes a time where these experiences impact us in a way where we never really let them in before. You know, We actually never registered the impact of sickness or the impact of aging or the impact of death. And so for me, I, that I can understand and relate to easier than that the, these things were actually kept out of sight. What's the truth I don't know, you know, but what's interesting to me is is that the first discourse that the Buddha gave, he talks about the truth of suffering as it is its nature is, is that it is pervasive, okay now, coming from a place of enormous privilege and opportunity and uh, luxury and being himself talented and beautiful, it's interesting for me that his first point is actually about the pervasive nature of suffering. You would think, you know, how did he get there? But the way I can understand it is, is, is that when we are immersed in pleasure and our talent and the wonderful opportunities that we have, we are not seeing things clearly. There's a kind of film... That covers over our experience, and that film means that we are not focused on what's really important because we're having too much fun. And you know, living in the monastery, um, it was pretty much often the case that when people were on their honeymoon, they did not come to the monastery. You know, or if they had won the jackpot, they did not come to the monastery. It was often when things were really challenging that people would want to come to the monastery. And then sometimes for people who had been practicing meditation for a long time and had a long-standing connection with the monks and the nuns, that they would come when things were challenging, but they would also come again when they'd shifted and they'd come to rejoice. So it wasn't only to get support when things were difficult, but when things shifted again. And like I remember a family came when the boy was extremely sick. And they came, and what's often the case in a monastery is, is a traditional uh, is to offer food to the monastics, and uh, to let the blessings of that generosity be a force of goodness to support in whatever challenges that the people are dealing with. And so they did that. You know, the boy had gotten sick. The family came. They offered a meal. But then, when the boy got well, they came back and they offered another meal as a source of rejoicing, which was really lovely. You know, to close the loop. So, monasteries are places where people are often coming when things are challenging, and then when you have a deep understanding of the practice, you can come also when things are really wonderful. But it's usually not the first place where people come when they're having a fabulous time. They don't come to the monastery, you know. So, the nature of suffering is is that it is pervasive. Okay. It doesn't mean that everything is terrible. It just means that the quality or the characteristic of suffering is is that it pervades a lot. It pervades a lot of what we're experiencing. And so the Buddha talked about that in terms of the pervasive nature of it is is, is that in the in the qualities of things that are are difficult to be with. So our physical pain and our mental pain, our grief, our sorrow, our despair, our Anguish, these are difficult things to be with. So it's pretty apparent in that this the that unsatisfactoriness is, is easy to see. But also when things change there's an unsatisfactoriness. So that you can have a really lovely time or a beautiful meal or be hanging out with friends or at a dance party or or watching an exquisite sunset or hearing birds mm-hmm. song that's just you know, just enlivening, uplifting to the heart. But because it's not something that lasts, the fact that it is beautiful has an it's inherently unsatisfactory because it can't be something that you can hold on to, you know? And then the nature of the, the things that make up a human being, you know, our body and our feeling and our perception and the way in which we associate with things, because the things that make up who we are are also changing, then in them there isn't a sense of lasting satisfactoriness that we can find in the components of what make us human. Okay? Okay. So, this tends to be something which is then, in our world, we can see that there is an enormous amount of movement away from dealing with this fundamental basic fact. And the movement is to seek out pleasure. It's to seek out pleasure both in terms of sense pleasure, in terms of having nice experiences and good things to eat, in terms of having, altering our mind states in terms of sex, in terms of drugs, in terms of all kinds of stuff, in terms of music, you know. There's a desire to have something which is pleasant, and that pleasant experience is often a mask of this kind of basic sense that, you know, some of the things that happen in life are not um, ultimately satisfying, and that we can't really, uh, we can't shift that out of, with our control. Okay. But what also happens in this world, which is something which is endemic, is, is, is that for a whole variety of reasons, one of which is, is that we experience things as fundamentally not satisfying, is, is that we take it to be that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. That this is happening because there's something wrong with me. I'm fundamentally flawed or lacking or insufficient or not okay. And it's complex how that shapes, how that actually comes into being, but it does come into being. And for many people that's very deep-seated, you know, the sense of this fundamental sense of being not okay. And so then the life is like into two different groups. Does this support my sense of feeling okay, or does this reinforce the sense of me not feeling okay? You know, it's very um, um, polarized in terms of how one relates to life. But when one begins to look into some of these feelings and what gives rise to them, it is on one hand a complex journey, a psychologically complicated journey while this stuff is there, And on another hand, part of that is there is because we have taken it entirely personally that unsatisfactoriness is a characteristic of what we deal with in life. So we have taken that, internalized it, and come to the wrong conclusion that the reason why it's unsatisfactory is because there's something fundamentally not okay with me. And so then that sense of not being okay sets up this whole huge kind of longing to feel okay. This longing to feel okay, the longing to feel accepted, the longing to feel seen, the longing to know that we are grounded, that we're safe, that we are going to be sufficient. And different people have different strategies and mechanisms about how they go about doing that. All right? So both because we internalize the unsatisfactoriness and also because we are reacting to the unsatisfactoriness craving ends up being, for most people, a really big deal. You know? It's a really big deal, the way we long for something that's not happening right now. And I'm not talking about, you know, the kinds of things that, well... We need to breathe, and we need a certain amount of food, and we need a certain amount of air. I'm not talking about fulfill the craving for our fundamental physical needs. I'm talking about the way in which our mind grabs onto ideas about what we need to have happen in order to feel that we are going to be okay. And of course, living in a world which has a capitalistic uh, and consumeristic Um, economy, then this basic thing, which happens for everybody, is then capitalized upon by the advertising industry and run with. And so then billboards and advertising and newspapers and radio shows and television shows and uh, pop-ups on the computer are all telling you that if you get this thing, or if you have this experience, or if you eat this food, you're going to be sexy and loved and you're not going to suffer. You know, And so the society completely feeds the delusion, one, that there's something fundamentally not okay with us, and two, that the answer is outside. It's not something that we have inside. And I was reading a book earlier this year, and it, 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 it had, it had a, a description from an advertising website about how they, they deliberately try and make people feel bad about themselves, so that that gives them the, the, the vulnerability to want to fill that up with, with a product. And it's it's horrendous, and that's the way it works. That's the nature of advertising. It's based on creating the sense that something is fundamentally not okay with you, and that you need a product or an experience or a something, a flavor, a taste to, to make yourself okay. And so it's like, well, you know, wow, that's quite something. And it's not only... Bad because we're buying all this junk that we don't want, but it's bad because, you know, what happens to us and our idea about ourselves is, is, is that it starts to get totally deteriorated. And so the example in this that I was reading was this is that in, in Fiji, I can't remember when it was, I think it was 1997, they had no television. And so before 1997, where they had no television and they had no advertising, they had no eating disorders on the island, okay? Zero. And then, like, within three years after having television and advertising and these images about, you know, these incredibly skinny women that are supposed to be beautiful and that that's the idea of what is beautiful and how you're supposed to be, then there was, like, several hundred cases of young adolescent girls who've got eating disorders and it's like the cause and effect it's like this is not only about you know economics it's about rotting our minds you know and our sense of who we are and our sense of well being that we're fundamentally okay and it's not just a little bit of a problem but an eating disorder is really challenging thing to sort through it's not a simple problem you know so we've got a society that like capitalizes on our suffering and then uses it to support buying products that support their aims. It's like sick, okay? (laughs) And so we have in us not only the innate kind of craving and instincts that we have, but we have it also fed and perpetuated by the world around us that's trying to utilize that for... Um, aims and values that have nothing to do with our best interest, okay? So craving is a really big thing, and if any of us really get a handle on it, it makes a huge difference in our world, and we don't get a handle on it. We are constantly being driven by stuff that is, you know, out of our control. We don't understand what's going on and we can see that you know when craving becomes focused and obsessed or addictive you know it, it it's it's almost guaranteed a pathway to hell you know it's like there's there's no peace in addiction addiction is not a path of peace addiction is a path of hell so Our craving, we have a craving for physical pleasure and for sensual contact. We also have craving to be, to be heard, to be seen, to be recognized, to be valued, to be safe. And we also have the craving not to be. We have the craving to not feel, to not know, to not see, to not show up. And we can see the way the cravings can move from one to the other when we're not paying attention to what's happening, when we're experiencing something that's unpleasant, you know? So, you know, let's say that, you know, there's a sense of loneliness, you know, which for many people in our society that is so kind of separate and disconnected from land and from community... It's common that we feel lonely. And so rather than attend to the loneliness or bring skillfulness to the loneliness or go hang out with friends or, you know, furry people, you know, we hang out with the refrigerator and the, you know, the chocolate chip cookies or, you know, having some ice cream. or We eat food to placate the feeling because the feeling is uncomfortable. Well, we're eating not because we need food. We're eating because we don't know how to deal with the feeling. Yeah? So we take a strategy that makes us feel better temporarily as a way of distracting our attention from something that doesn't feel very good. And our life is built up with a whole variety of many different things that are like that. And so so then, as a result of not being present with the loneliness and not knowing how to deal with it and resolve it, then there's an increased sense of, oftentimes, a sense of, of not really knowing sure who we are or what our place is, which then feeds more craving. You know, so it becomes a, a cycle that the more that we use craving to take ourselves away from what's happening, then the more we don't know how to be still with what's happening and the more it feeds craving. It, it's a perpetual machine. It's a cycle. So craving and the way that we relate to craving is a really, really, really important topic to wake up to. And, you know, one of the things that we need to wake up to with craving is to understand that our craving is often a response or reaction away from something that we don't want to be with, you know. And so when we have the interest or the curiosity to just drop in and see, okay, what am I wanting to get rid of? You know, what do I not want to feel? Then that gives us a crowbar where we've got more leverage on what we do with that and the kind of choices that we make. So it's not that you can't eat cookies, you know. It's not that you can't distract yourself. But when the distraction is coming out of unconsciousness that perpetuates more craving and causes more suffering, then it's like digging ourselves a trench, you know, and it's hard to get out of. Sometimes when, you know, our systems have been inundated and either physically or emotionally we've had as much pain as we can cope with, we need to actually just um, nourish ourselves. And there's been, I can't count how many times that, you know, it's like I've had enough, there's been too much pain, my body hurts too much, my mind and heart too much, it's time to take two ibuprofen, take a bath and go to bed. It's like, I'm done, you know? It doesn't matter if it's 6 o'clock at night. I'm done, you know? And so it's like that's not, a, that's not from craving. It's like from I've reached capacity. I don't have any more ability to work with this skillfully. I just need to rest. And the way I need to rest is to take a couple of notches off of the pain and, you know, not be engaging in, in navigating this territory, okay? Okay. So that is coming from compassion. It's not coming from ignorance. And it's different. And so even though that response, which looks very much like checking out, it's a different response from, I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. Can you see the difference with that? That's right. Yeah. And the motivation. You know, the motivation is very different. So, the craving for sensuality, the craving for being, the craving for non-being, you know, one of the things that we have to recognize is part of our craving is our craving for relational contact, that we actually crave to be in a certain kind of relationship with other people. And this kind of craving is a curious craving because... As human beings, there's ways in which contact with other people can be incredibly supportive. And there's ways in which contact with other people can be just incredibly confusing and, and dispersive and distracting and difficult. And so the craving for genuine, authentic, honest relating with somebody where you have some sense of safety and you can trust, this is actually touching into a psychological arena which is a different kind of craving than the kinds of craving that the Buddha talked about. And so my experience is is that it actually requires a fair amount of sophistication to be able to figure out what's going on and to figure out what the right response is. Because for most of us, you know, we come from situations where for a variety of reasons or um there was some lack in getting our primary needs met when we were little and so there's a kind of a, a pattern that then repeats itself through our life that tends to either recreate similar patterns or to just assume that it's not possible to get one's needs met okay this this kind of craving for that kind of safety is, a, is, a, is opening up um, a, an understanding about the way in which as human beings, when we're up until the time we are adults, we are interdependent on caregivers for our basic needs. Okay, And when there's not been responsiveness or attunement or an adequate amount of our needs getting met, then it, it, it changes our perception about who we are and what's possible in this world. And the way that perception gets formed is actually pretty resilient. So unless there is usually deliberate effort to cut across and to reshape those ways of perceiving the world, that perception, that basic perception, will continue with us throughout much of our life. Okay, So the craving and the kinds of craving that the Buddha was talking about is not this psychological craving. It's a different kind of craving because we need to be able to understand how this shapes the way we see the world and shapes the way we see ourselves so that we are able to find something which is responsive rather than reactive and move towards what is healthy rather than towards perpetuate habits which are unhealthy. Um, so just for the people who are new to this group and haven't met me before, you know, when I first started this, I started with a chanting. And what that is is um, really a signal for everybody here to know that what we're doing right now is a little bit different than kind of like just sitting on the street corner chit-chatting or in the cafe or, or you know. Uh, it, it's, it's the opportunity to listen in a way where we can really consider whether this stuff resonates as being true or not true. And so that chant is a way for me to remember that this is a special situation for speaking. And it's a, it's a clue for everybody here to know that we're moving into a different kind of way of talking than we normally do. And this kind of talking is meant to be something which people reflect on rather than believe. So I don't speak in a way where I'm asking you to believe what it is that I say. I'm asking you to really have your attention be focused in on your own internal experience, your body and your breath and your own felt sense. Because when you hear something that's true when you're listening in a reflective way, your body knows, you know, your breath relaxes, your chest opens, you relax, you know, you know. And so it's not about believing, it's about resonating. Okay? And so when you resonate with something, you know it's true. And you can reflect on the way in which it resonates inside. But if it doesn't resonate, you know, you don't need to really to do anything much with it. You can just let it be. Let it go. Sometimes when there's a real strong, this is not right, then there's a real curious possibility. Because resistance can come one of two reasons, often. One, because you're hearing something that goes against something that you definitely know to be true. The other is is that because it actually touches a bit of a nerve, because it is actually true, but it actually is exposing something which is very uncomfortable. And that discomfort causes a resistance. So when there's a really strong resistance to something that you hear, then there's an opportunity to inquire further to see whether this is coming because this is cutting across something you really know to be true, wrong, or is actually touching something which is exposing something that's hard to be with. So there's an opportunity for further inquiry. So I'm going to pause here for this reflection, and then uh, we can stop and stand up and have a few minutes break, and then circle up and share names and have a discussion and close. Okay? Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.